medicinal cannabis and associated responsible patient care requires up-to-date knowledge in the current Australian medical landscape. United in Compassion will be holding their next symposium at Tweed Heads, New South Wales from the 22nd to the 24th of March, 2019. FX Medicine Live will be proudly attending and of course be conducting interviews with all the leading experts in the field. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to unitedincompassion.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Sarah Franklin, who's a Gold Coast-based naturopath, registered nurse, acupuncturist, and winner of the 2016 Beamer Award for Naturopathy. Sarah is specialised in oncology nursing by initially training as a registered nurse and specialising in oncology and palliative care, with further education in cytotoxic drug administration through the Royal College of Nursing. Over a period of time, Sarah could see the benefit of integrative medicine with oncology patients, which encouraged her to further her education in naturopathy and acupuncture. Sarah works with patients and educates local cancer-based support groups, cancer councils, oncology nurses and oncologists on the use of safe integrative approaches in regards to oncology. Welcome to FX Medicine, Sarah Franklin. How are you? I'm very well and thanks for having me. Sarah, today we're going to be talking about a sadder aspect of integrative care, and that's palliative care. Um, you've got a lot of experience in this because you're a registered nurse, and you've nursed in that area as well as been an integrative practitioner in that area outside of hospital. But I think we need to go back right to the beginning with a definition. Palliative care, what is it? Well, palliative care, it's one of those, it's it's a really broad broad topic, but basically palliative care means the care that you're specifically giving a patient towards the end of their life. So that can be a really broad thing because there's lots of there's lots of aspects to palliative care. But basically the focus should be on improving the quality of the life of the patient and supporting the family around that patient. But it's also important to remember that a lot of patients get anxiety when palliative care teams get get involved during the, the end of their life. Um, and there's a negative stigma about the word palliative care in that when people talk about palliative care, they tend to think end of life or dying. Mm. But palliative care is that whole process leading up to that too. So palliative care is about making sure their quality of life during that phase is there, not just the death part at the end. So it's probably really important to understand that palliative care isn't just the dying bit at the end, that it's about the whole process towards the end of life as far as um, once a patient's disease is at that point where you know that there's not going to be any recovery from it. And indeed, this can be lengthened by integrative naturopathic care. So maybe we should think about a different term. What do you think about the term like um, non-curative care? Yeah, something something like that might just get rid of that stigma stigma for the patients because in the community or and death is such a taboo subject mm. um, in Australia anyway, so nobody likes to talk about it and it tends to be something that 
a lot of people are uncomfortable to talk to their patients about or they like to skirt around the outside because it's once you start talking to a patient about palliative care, then it becomes, um, I know we've talked about before that it it's do do people think that you're giving up on them? Do they give up on hope for their treatment? And it's like, but that's not the case. It's just that the um, the treatment or the focus for your treatment is starting to shift. So, so, but it would be something like yeah, more, more non-curative disease. Um, there definitely could be a better word for it because I think um, a lot of the people when they think palliative care think death rather than um, all the other things that encompass leading up to that. It's not just that that death part of the end is such a small part of that process. Yeah, indeed. Like I remember a um, a great um, transcript it was, that I read. I didn't listen to it, but it was on the conversation. But I think the thing was it's not all about death. You know, conversations with patients in palliative care, there's this assumptive focus on death and dying. And I'm not saying indeed pointedly not saying that we shouldn't talk about death and dying, that we should dispel this stigma of those discussions. But there is also that thing about that part that it isn't all about death and there are things that we can do. Um, There's a lot that we can do in helping them to even elongate their days. Absolutely. And that's where like we have the benefit as integrative practitioners to um, I guess the, the, from a medical perspective, you're sort of more focused on um, specific symptoms that are occurring, whether it be um, constipation or insomnia or cachexia or there's specific things that you're focusing on. But for integrative practitioners, although that we can certainly help support all of those things, um, we can definitely focus on other things too. So energy, mood, appetite, there's so many other things that um we as integrative practitioners can focus on too rather than just putting out the spot fires that tend to pop up as the disease tends to progress. So um and that's where as a practitioner, so the same in my perspective, so I work predominantly as a naturopath um in my clinic, that I have to be really real about what is within my scope of practice and not and what is not. So I know the people that listen to the, your podcasts are from a diverse disciplines so some of them are doctors and some of them are dietitians and some of them might be physios so it's really being realistic about what your focus is and what your capabilities are and how you can benefit that patient but also being realistic about does that patient need to be referred off for grief counseling with a psychologist or do they need a referral to a dietitian for the cachexia or do they need a referral to exercise physiologist to try and maintain mobility that might be through degenerating disease or so it's really becoming aware of what you what is within your scope and when you need to refer on and I think if you do that um you know you're definitely going to do a better service to your patient but you're also not going to end up in a position where you end up going I could have or should have done things differently towards the end when the patient does deteriorate significantly so should have you implemented these things earlier so it's just being realistic about what what you can do and what you can't do and then building that team around you to work with those patients with the specialist or gps or 
other doctors that are working in that field as well. And this is, of course, the goals of care, which, um, you know, ASCO even um, talks about now. I, I think the lesson is to have these goals of care early, not late. Correct? Definitely. Definitely. And that and that all comes about, like you were saying before, it's that comes about having those conversations with the patient. So, and that doesn't mean on your first appointment that you you bring up the death Talk topic. Talk about and dying. It doesn't even, yeah, Probably yeah, not appropriate. <laughs> probably not. So, but it definitely, you have to start sussing out what they're, definitely palliative care. One of the big things that we focused on when I, when I went through university and when we, when I did more study on that was that even though two people can have the same cultural beliefs, they can be so different. So mm. if you look at it, look at, you're looking in Australia, if you looked at Christians, the views on how a Jehovah Witness versus a Roman Catholic dictates their healthcare are so different. But from someone who doesn't understand Christianity that well, you might go, well, they're all the same. And it's like, well, not the very different. So it's really important that as Australians where we, we probably understand Christianity a bit better, that it's being realistic that the same thing with Hinduism or Judaism or the Muslim religions, that they are culturally different too within their subsets. So it's really important that when you're talking to patients is to find out and to make sure that you're supporting and that you're valuing all of those beliefs that they have because it's not your beliefs that you're putting onto them. It's really understanding, you know, they might have certain beliefs around what food they can and can't eat or they might have certain beliefs about whether they would have male or female support teams physically because there are certain religions where you can't touch right. the opposite sex towards the end of life. Or, yeah. Yeah. that you need to be a certain religion or do you know what I mean? Those sort of, you've got to respect those religious dates and, sure. and all those sort of things with within those groups. So it's really important that you're talking to the patient to find out um, what do they want, you know, and you'll know when a patient's ready to start to admit that things aren't going well. So in the meantime, you sort of focus on, well, you know, what, what are your goals? Is it to, you know, um, did you want to try and stay at home as long as possible or did you, did you, if, if the care requires it, did you want to go to hospital? Do you know what I mean? If you're unwell, how did you want to, do you know what I mean? And that's a really mm, different mm. thing for different people. So some people prefer to be in that hospital environment where they feel a bit safer, while other people prefer just to be at home with their family where they've got that family support around them, but being realistic that when that occurs, there's a much greater demand on the, support network um, for patients that do stay at home. So then it's making sure that they've got the services in place to help them um, with that process. When you talk about the support network, that indeed can be a whole other ball game when the carer, who is very often the partner, um, is eventually left without somebody to care for when the patient dies. And there's a Absolutely. whole chapter opening up there. Absolutely. And it's really being sensitive to the partner. So you've got to be realistic that this that that's their support person. And you've got to be realistic that patients in the palliative phases can get quite aggressive and they can get quite agitated and bits and pieces. And some of that comes from fear because yeah. they're they're scared. Some of it comes because they're in pain and they're uncomfortable all the time. So we all get irritable when we're like that anyway. But you've also got to be realistic. There are some metabolic things that occur during palliative care that can make them quite confused and agitated cerebrally as well, which we see with palliative with the calcium calcium levels and yep. different things going off. 
<clears throat> so it's really important that you support the support person because um, it's a really unusual role. And there has been some research out to show that um, just for you know, just for just for cancer patients that aren't palliative, is that the post-traumatic stress period can last longer for the support person than it can for the person undergoing treatment. So there's they're, they're definitely showing that there is a lot of trauma associated for those people that are caring for somebody when everything's out of control for them. So they can't control anything. They're, they've sort of just got to buckle in for the ride, so to speak. But it's also um, being aware that that relationship changes too. So if you've got a husband and a wife, for example, and the husband's in a palliative situation, the wife almost becomes the mother. So they become this caring this caring role, um, and then that shifts the dynamics within the marriage because mm. that imbalances. Then you end up with a like a mother son relationship rather than a rather than an intimate wife relationship. relationship. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's really important to make sure that you know, and and sometimes with patients and support people, it's just making them aware that that's not happening. So I, you know, the reality is that you're still their wife. You're not their their mother. So. Your relationship is different. You're definitely there as a carer, but you don't want to lose that other relationship because that's what it was, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's being really aware that those relationships can shift too. So they really need support as far as all the same thing for children, children becoming a parent role when oh, they're the child. So there's that's a lot hard, of conflict. Yeah, that occurs. So it's the same thing, but if you're all talking about it and you're all aware of it, then I think the patients and the support crew deal with it a lot much better than when you just, you know, a patient's coming in and why you're here and, okay, yeah, yep, 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 you're anxious or depressed, we'll give you this and off you go rather than actually sitting there and and spending time with the patient to figure out what's what's going on because it's, you know, it, it really is palliative care is such a individual approach with every patient. Yeah. It's, it's trying, you know, there's some patients who, um, might be quite accepting of the whole thing, and then you've got others that will be in denial right up to to when it all occurs, even though the the family around them are aware of the situation. You said a very interesting word just earlier, and that was support crew rather than support yeah. people. Does yeah. that word crew um, does that engender a teamwork approach, a collective approach, a bolstering approach to their psyche? Does it help? I, I think so, and I think I think a lot of people think, well, it's the immediate family that are going to be the primary carers when it's it's not often the case. And the same thing going back to cultural diversity. So I know from from a nursing perspective, when we're doing palliative nursing, um, it's such a stark difference between, say, traditional English lineage, where we tend to you're eighteen years old, you move out of home. When you're too old, you'll probably go to a nursing home. So that tends to be a more English approach where, like, you know, you see some of the Italian families and the, some of the European families where the cousins and everybody are all involved in that, that care and management. So they have a, you know, they take a, a lot of responsibility and um, the way that they approach is a lot different. But when you're looking at support crew, I guess, it's looking at that other that whole other team. So um, your naturopaths, your massage, your your physios, like you're all a part of that patient's support team and you would all emotionally be getting affected by what you see every day mm. doing what you're doing. So, And you, you should be 
So it's just supporting. It's like I'm aware of my patients with even my reception. So the girls that take the appointments and and do all of those things, I'm really aware of, you know, if a patient passes away, are they doing okay? Because they're the person that's, you know, speaking to them on the phone and do you need an appointment and all of those sort of things. So there's a lot of people involved in their care that you just want to make sure that everyone's everyone's doing okay. Who cares for the carer? When, yeah. we're, when we're talking as an integrative practitioner as opposed to an orthodox team, when we're thinking as an integrative practitioner, what aspects can we help with with regards to palliative care? Yeah, so with, with I guess, the main things as an integrative practitioner, so some of the main things that we come across, so one of the first thing before I go into those would be just really take seriously your medication interactions. So a lot of palliative patients are on a lot of medications. A lot of them are sedating, a lot of pain medication usually. So really just watch your drug interactions so that we're not over-sedating patients and that we're not clearing them out through the side enzymes with the liver because then we're we're being counter-antagonists. So first off, just make sure with whatever we do that you're making sure that it's safe. Um, the Probably one of the main focuses would be the cachexia, so, um, which is when in the palliative stage, and this is not just cancer. So whenever when people talk about palliative, they often go cancer, where it's, there's lots of diseases that are palliative. So um, your dementia, your Alzheimer's, your CVAs, there's so many diseases that are palliative that can go on for a period of time where a patient deteriorates. Yeah, yeah. Um, but cachexia is something we definitely see with a lot of disorders, so a lot of neurodegeneration diseases and cancer. So that's where a patient loses weight, loses muscle tone, fatigue, um, when they're not meaning to. So they're sort of losing weight um, and they just can't keep it on. So cachexia is one thing. So that's when we're really focusing on their diet. So really focusing on making sure that their calorie intake is a lot greater than what it should be. So making sure that they are eating enough. Um, and really focusing on the the proteins, the fats, and the carbohydrates. So you're sort of you're definitely wanting to bolster as much of that stuff as possible. But keep in mind, um, if the patient is on a dietary um, on dietary advice from the hospitals, then follow it. So if the patient's say on a low residue diet because there's bowel obstructions and things happening, obviously don't disregard specific diets that they've been put on because yeah. they're, they're there for a reason. Yeah. Um, so really with the cachexia, trying to get that that um, caloric intake up. Um, the same thing can be used with those patients is your protein powders or your, you know, I'm not a fan of the sustagens, but you sort of, you get to a point where you're just trying to get anything in to keep, keep, keep the energy and the calories up. Um, so that would be one thing to focus on. There's a, I think it's university... Um, University of Technology Sydney are currently doing it. So they're doing some clinical trials on cachexia and cannabis. They're trialling two different forms of cannabis products to see if that can help with appetite, stimulate appetite um, with um, palliative patients. Mm. So they're doing a trial at the moment. So um, that would be the first thing is integrative. So are they getting enough nutrition? So really focusing on those nutritional that nutritional intake. Um, one of the other things we see a lot of is bowel bowel issues so um constipation is your big one so constipation because of the um medications or painkillers that they're taking um but again just be mindful that you know with the you know with bowel obstructions we don't want to be using anything stimulating um and be realistic that some of these patients may have had significant abdominal surgery so they might have adhesions or 
um, things like that. So even, co- even colostomies. Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. So managing all of those sort of things. So trying to use things so um, to keep their bowels to keep their bowels active. So that's probably one of the big things that we see because once they get constipated and they start getting bowel obstructions, then they just lose their appetite straight away, and then their stomach shrinks, and then you're sort of back to trying to feed them up again yeah. afterwards. And obviously, when they're in hospital, they're nil by mouth for a few days to um, until the obstruction clears, if they can clear it normally. Um, and obviously, just liaising with those patients too, if they've got peg feeds or nasogastrics, is liaising with the medical team. So don't ever attempt to put anything through a nasogastric or a peg without speaking to the medical team. So there are some things that, you know, I've used before with pegs or whatever, but you really need to run it by the team to make sure that you're not going to do any damage to those devices. Yeah. And and at the end of the day, be realistic. So I think I, that's what I've seen as a practitioner is that I'll have palliative patients coming to me and they've been put on these no dairy, no wheat, no sugar, mm. really restrictive diets, and they're following because they're desperate. Um, but they're right in their palliative stages and it's like, well, it's not, it's, that's when you've got to start to get realistic about what your treatment focus is. So are you going for cure or are you not? Um, and then if you're not, it's it's um, being realistic that they need to have some quality of life too. So yeah. if they occasionally want to have that that wine or if they want to have, you know, if they, they go out and they have a dessert, it's not the end of the world. Do you know what I mean? So no. they have to enjoy it's their quality of life. Yeah. yeah. So for some people, food is um, you know, it gives them a lot of pleasure and other people could give it or take it. So it's it's being mindful of, um, you know, sometimes if you're too rigid and you're too restrictive with some of the things you're doing in the palliative care, you're not helping with that. So you're sort of creating a lot more anxiety around what they do with that. I covered this uh, off with Lise Alshula, um and she's got this brilliant, positive mind. I mean, she's just such an amazing lady, but about the, the topic was changing the focus when people are desperate. So they're, they're in desperation. They really are towards the end of their days. Um, they're in hospital. Nothing can more can be done medically. You'll find probably that the medical team is more open to anything, uh, uh, integrative because they can do nothing more medically. The problem comes, though, when the patient is desperate and wants a cure, and there's this yeah. drowning man sort of um, period. How do you handle that with regards to palliative care? How do you handle it with regards to the patient? And how do you handle it with regards to the team? I think I think you've really got to listen to the patient because the patient can sometimes be saying they want a cure, but you can tell that they are thinking otherwise. Um, I guess it's making sure that the where's it coming from. Yeah. So because some patients are fixed on a cure, but, you know, I've had so many patients that I've treated that are like, I've had enough, like mm. I've had enough, but my family are pushing me to keep going. Right. But they've had enough. So it's trying to figure out, well, who's driving it? Yeah. So is the patient driving it or is the is the family driving, driving it to mm. a degree? Mm. Um, what do you, what do, you do there though? When, the, when it's the we, fear of the family. Yeah, and I think that's when, you know, I guess I probably over time I probably, I wouldn't say I'm a ball at a gate, but at the same point I I, I don't, I'm not going to mince my words when it comes to, not not in a mean way at all, but I'm not going to give somebody false hope. Yeah. So I think that's the worst thing point, you can do. 
yeah, if you're at that point, and, and we definitely see we definitely see patients who where that's happened to, um, where patients are being told, yep, yep, we're going to give you all these this integrative medicine stuff, and we're going to cure you, um, but it just doesn't. Do you know what I mean? Totally unethical. It's, it's unethical. So it's being realistic about what you can and can't do. And I think there's a there's a part as a practitioner too where if you say to a patient, I can't help you that you're failing as a practitioner. Yeah. So I think pac- practitioners feel like, well, I'm failing and I don't know what to do and there's nothing I can do to help you. So I'm failing as a practitioner rather than maybe you're not failing, maybe you're acknowledging that that's limitations. where you're at right now. Yeah. But, yeah, your limitations, but this is moving forward. This is how I can support you in the right way. Mm. Um, so I think it's definitely, I think you, I think you learn in time when you're dealing with them that you, you know, when that point is to have that discussion to go, you know, where are you at? What, what's going on? And, and I guess if you feel like the family are really driving it, that's when you try to get the patient on their own because generally they'll always be there with them. Those, those type of families, um, is trying to get the patient on their own. And it's amazing what candid can discussions that they can have where they can just you know voice their concerns and their fear about you know are, is my family going to be okay and is everyone going to be okay when I pass away but they can't they don't feel like they can have those discussions with some of the family members and that's mm. nothing that's nothing negative within the family structure it's just different people feeling comfortable expressing different different views but I think yeah as a practitioner I think if you're aware of your limitations you're not going to string a patient on in that way but I think patients I think sorry practitioners definitely need to be realistic and really accountable for what they're saying as far as how much hope they're giving or what advice they're giving so um, because patients hang on every word and often these palliative palliative patients are with you because the medical system couldn't offer them anymore, so then they've ended up here. Yep. Just like they do with a lot of, you yep. know, with naturopaths, with a lot of skin disorders and everything else. They've been around the traps and no one can help, and then they end up with an atropath. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, yeah, definitely being wary of your limitations. Um, but I think you start to know when the patients, you know, you definitely know when you're ready to start to have that discussion about, well, you know, Maybe instead of focusing on that, maybe we start focusing more on your digestion and your energy and just so you're feeling better. What do you think about the work of Dr. Ranjana Srivastava and um, Bronnie Ware with regards to what patients want to have, what conversations they want to have, and indeed their regrets? I think with with patients, um, yes, you definitely have those discussions about what um, I think regardless of why my patients walk in the door, I'm, the door, I always want to know early in the piece what their goals, what do they actually want. So what I think they should be doing can be very different to what the patient's wanting to focus on. Right. Um, but I think it is really important to focus on, well, what – I think we, you do bring up that quite early in the piece where you go, okay, well, if this doesn't work, if what we're doing doesn't work, then what are your – I guess what are you what are your thoughts or, yeah. or what are you what where are you thinking of going with that? Um there are psychologists around who specifically deal with grief. Like there are specific grief psychologists out there that do just do a lot more of that sort of work, which are really beneficial because not all psychologists focus on grief in the palliative stages. So it's definitely um seeing how comfortable the patient is with their own death. Um 
um, and what their beliefs, again, what their beliefs are around that. And I think that's really important as far as a practitioner before you even go there with a patient is you need to be really uncomfortable. You need to be, sorry, really comfortable with what your concept of death is. So yeah. you need to be really comfortable with your own immortality, that we are all immortal and that we're not all, we're not all going to be here forever. So we're all going to be in that palliative stage at, you know, at some point. Yeah. Um, so I think as a practitioner, before you can have those comfortable conversations with a patient where you're relaxed with it, I think you definitely need to be comfortable with your own sense of death. So coming from a nursing perspective, when I first did palliative care in a nursing aspect, I remember I was only 21 and I'd lost seven patients in my first five days or something. And I was a mortal. I was 21, you know, you're, you're, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Yeah. Um, no, you're not, Sarah. Really had... You are not 10 foot tall. <laughs> oh, okay. Come on, Andrew, that can't see. <laughs> <laughs> and I really had to process how I felt about death. So I, I had a lot of anxiety about death. And I remember going to the nursing unit manager and saying, oh, I don't think I'm cut out for this palliative care business. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting, you know, it's, I'm thinking about it all the time. And, but eventually I got to a point where I was comfortable with it and, um, I was comfortable with my own mortality that, yes, I was going to die and I was okay with that. So I really was comfortable with it. And I really saw the work that I'm doing with palliative patients as a privilege. So I see dealing with a patient, people go, how can you deal with palliative patients all the time? It's like I see it as privilege. So I really believe that you can help someone to have a good death and to have a good end of life. Just like, you know, the midwives can help women um, or babies come into the life and have a beautiful birth and mm. a beautiful experience. So I think us as practitioners can play a really vital role in you can either make it something really beautiful and loving and calm and peaceful or you can make it really traumatic and scary and everything else. So I think I think if you can be really calm and comfortable in your own skin, then I think you can you can really sit with a patient humbly and go, how can we how can we help and how can we work through this together? How can I help you work through this together? But I think if you're not comfortable with where you're at, I think you'll struggle. So I think some practitioners definitely need to sit in that space to a degree. Um and the same thing, I was very comfortable with it. And then I found years later after I had children, I had a spike in, oh, you know, just a spike in that little bit of when you're dealing with death all the time and you're around people that are dying all the time, you get a you get a skewy vision of the world where you think everyone's dying when they're not. Um, and I remember having the kids and it, it spiked again. And I was like, what's that about? Like I was really comfortable with it. Why am I getting a bit anxious now about my own right. immortality. Yeah. And, and it came around and it took me a while to get there where I went, it's my ego. Yeah. It's my oh. ego that I think that I'm so self-important that if I die, my kids aren't going to be okay. And oh, it see. took me a while to go, the reality is my kids would be okay. Right. So yes, I'd be sad, but there's lots of kids that have lost their parents and they've grown up to be strong, wonderful, beautiful people who, yes, are very sad and and I'm sure they'd prefer the parent to be there, but it didn't stop them from being who they were. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that was my own ego that I thought I was irreplaceable when the reality is I am. So it's the same thing. You sort of had to come back around and go, okay, I, you know, I'm comfortable with it. If something happened, I know that it's, do you know what I mean? You have to really be comfortable with it. And I think if you can be comfortable with it, um, I think you can be less desensitized to it, which is something that we see in the medical 
profession a lot more where practitioners are quite desensitised to a lot of things that happen. So they're quite disconnected and they don't grieve at all when you lose a patient that you've been looking after for months. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that comes from a fear, a fear base too, where it's just easier to disconnect than it is to hug a patient or hold their hand and go, I'm sorry and yeah. I'm really genuinely sorry that this is happening to you and to have a cry with them and that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Rather yeah. than um, not having any emotion because I think you do need to to provide good care. I think you really do need to feel and be compassionate to what's going on. You actually struck a chord there. I was just blinking away <laughs> tears. Um, but indeed, this is what this is what um, Ranjana, forgive me, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Ranjana um, Srivastava, I've confirmed her name. Um, she talks about, and there's this disconnect, particularly her, she, she talks about her own profession, medicine. So doctors are disconnected from their patients because of these fears. Um, but there's also been work done by a nurse in palliative care, and forgive me, I cannot remember her name, but she has also interviewed a lot of patients, talking to them about what are their regrets, what are their thoughts about their life and their fears. Is that Kubler-Ross? No, not, not Elizabeth no, Kubler-Ross. That's the stages of dying. This yeah. was a lady more recently who's interviewed patients about their regrets in life or, or about their thoughts about dying. And, and, and it was like most people by far had the regrets about not um, being with their family, not living to their own full potential, that sort of thing. Nothing, nothing was regarding money or things. It all went back to people. It was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, 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 and that's you know it definitely you know it it does strip away all of those things that are important or you know things that we waste time on that we just shouldn't be 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 wasting time on. So it definitely puts. I think that's an advantage of working with palliative care is that you certainly um, you're a bit more realistic and a bit more grateful for yeah. things I think in life than other things that people take for granted that. Um, they just think you're going to be there tomorrow, but they won't be. So, and I think that's where um, there needs to be. There's not a lot of education around palliative care, or there's not a lot of education around death, dying, bereavement. There is probably more so in the nursing realm. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the other industries don't really focus on how you can be of benefit at that stage. And that's, you know, and it's, they all have such a, um, all of those. Just different disciplines, your physios, your massage therapists, they can all play such a really vital role in, you know, just touching a patient or, um, you know, just that contact with some patients is something that they're, you know, they just need. Yeah. What about the point of letting go? What about telling somebody that it's okay to let go? that it's okay for them to choose when they want to go rather than hanging around for others. You know how um, nursing staff go through this quite a lot where they say, look, just go and grab a cup of coffee and the person dies while they're <laughs> just away. You know, that sort yeah. of yeah. Let, yeah. let them die alone because everybody will die alone in the end. Family can be around you, but there's this, it's almost like people hang on so as people aren't there to see them breathe their last breath yeah i think i think yeah patients definitely choose um I'd, I'd probably say more um yeah and and definitely you know i've been with patients where you've got it's, it's okay to go like it's okay to 
to stop fighting mm. um, because they just, I think they've fought for so long they don't know what else to do. Um, but I think from a, like from, a, from an integrative, I guess from a naturopathist perspective, we don't see patients at that end, no. that end, end stage, which as a nurse we do. So, and I think that's where if practitioners saw patients in their palliative stage, I think they'd be a lot more accountable for what they do with their care and their management. So I I think I'm, because I've nursed so many patients with death, um, I'm very realistic about my accountability with that patient when I'm treating them in my rooms. So yeah. I'm very realistic about, I've seen the patients lie there in bed and go, you know, the ones that might have done all chemotherapy and nothing integrative and they'll lie there in bed and go, I wish I'd changed my diet or I wish I'd yeah. done something differently. And vice versa, you can have someone in there that did no chemotherapy and did all naturally going, I wish I'd had surgery or yeah. I wish I'd, what if I'd, what if I'd done something differently? So I think that's when it comes to treating those patients. I think if you saw more of that, you'd be more realistic that at the end of the day, it's that patient that's going to live with the consequences, not you. Yeah. So it's it's them that are going to experience it. So Live and die with the consequences. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So mm. I think you need to have more accountability with that. Um, but it's okay, you know, it, it's okay to have those discussions with those patients and to, to let them know that it's okay if they don't want to fight anymore. Like that's okay. So I think a lot of them need, you know, they're just they're not doing it for themselves anymore. They're just doing it for everyone else. But yeah. that's not why they should be doing it. Sarah, there's so much more to discuss with this. I mean, it's such it, a it's it's, it's, a, it's a massive subject. Massive. But I, but I don't think I think as far as the the medical body and the nursing body goes, I think particularly the nursing body is that we have really good support networks in place for us as nurses. So I think nurses are very good at debriefing with each other. Um, yes. I think we have we have support. We've got psychologists if we need them. We can all relate because you can finish a shift and then you can go, you know, all the girls or guys know what we're experiencing during those shifts. So it's all, you know what I mean? We You don't need to talk about it as much because you get it. You're doing it and you, you're experiencing it together. Mm-hmm. But I think with solo practitioners or practitioners out there that are naturopaths or dietitians, I think they don't have that support network yeah. around them. For so the they, 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 yeah, so it's really important that those people have other practitioners to go, I'm having a really bad day or, you know, this has happened with a patient, I don't know what to do. That's a really insightful thing, you know, Sarah, because we like to say, wow, you know, integrative medicine's so good. There's some things you can't help. There's some times where patients just don't get better, even when you're doing the best that you can. And I think you bring up a really relevant point that, that as integrative practitioners, we need to be supporting each other more, not just in a piecemeal way, but in a formatted way, in a program set up way to say yeah, there are going to be times yeah. when you're going to need support. Yeah, absolutely. And that you're, you're going to need someone to talk to because when you're dealing with palliative care, it just brings up so many issues. Mm. And the reality is like all of us, when you're treating a patient, you can always see aspects of yourself in a patient or you go, oh, I should be doing that or I shouldn't be doing that. Or, But it's the same thing when you're dealing with palliative care, your, your, yeah, your belief systems about death and your belief systems about other things are all going to come up and, you know, some patients may get anxiety about that. So it's really important that 
we're building networks with each other um, so that those practitioners have got people to speak to. But um, a lot of practitioners, you know, may not want to do that because, oh, does that mean I'm not coping or mm. – Mm. And it's like it's not it's not that you're not coping. It's just it's you're just normal. supporting each other. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it's it's finding those people to talk to to go, you know, or um, because I think yeah, when you're in independent practices, you don't have that support network that you do in the hospital systems or those other ones that um, obviously because you're seeing a lot more of it. Those systems are in place, but um you know you might get a run of a few patients where if that's not something that you do very often it can be really disturbing um emotionally for you so it's really learning you know do you need to see a psychologist do you need to come up with some strategies of how you're going to manage that or maybe you don't need to see a psychologist you just need to find someone else another colleague that understands that you can go and have a drink with after work and Yep. And and talk about it, which is what nurses do. Ah, the virtues <laughs> of alcohol. I love it. <laughs> um, I'd like to also add in there that um, I think this goes right back, right back in the beginning to education. When you feel that you've had a good education, once you've Definitely, got that, yeah. you've got to then get the experience behind you so that you are solid in yourself to say, I am practicing good practice. I am doing the best for my patients. And that's Absolutely. indeed where you come yeah. from. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's one of those things that you've got to be realistic. Is it easier to just keep moving forward with a patient than it is to actually stop and to have that discussion? Mm. So the reality is it's easier to keep moving forward um, than it is to stop and to go, what are we actually doing? Yeah. So I think that's where patient, you know, it's, it's just an easier choice. But I think if you can understand it and be more comfortable with that, then it's easier for you to stop and go, hang on, hang on, I think we're going down a road that is going to lead us to nowhere. Mm. So mm. I think we need to come back and re revisit. And um, like you're saying with Lisa, it's, you get to that point where you need to go, okay, we need to shift, shift where we're going now and be realistic about what you can achieve and what you can't achieve. Wise words, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking us through this on FX Medicine. I look forward to our next chat. Um, I said, you got to say, you don't mince words at all. You really bring up topical stuff. <laughs> and, and yet... But keeping it real. Yeah, keeping it real. You are, you are that. Um, but, you're, you know, you and I chat outside of FX Medicine and um, you are always positive and, and mindful and respectful of what all of facets, you know, can be done for patients. So I really thank you for that, for taking us through on FX Medicine today. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks for giving me the time. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The MIND International Forum will be held in Sydney on the 23rd and 24th of March 2019. To find out more and to register for this premier event, please go to forum.mindd.org.